Welcome to Why Is This Good? It's a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John and James. How's it going, guys? Yeah, it's going great. Pretty good. All right. So we will introduce you to James because we are without Rob again this week. And James, why don't you tell us about yourself and your stuff that you write? Yeah, sure. Um, I am a writer, and I've got some children's books out that I wrote and illustrated. They're called The Adventures of Tom Boddington. They're kind of caveman invented society from scratch. And uh, But I went to college and got my MFA in fiction writing, and that's kind of the children's books are kind of fan the bills while I try to get some novels out. And so right now I'm working on a novel about uh, Mesopotamia. Awesome. Nice. And um, James lives in Naples and we met him in our writers group. So we figured it'd be easy enough for him to kind of join in for some of these episodes. And we are letting James pick a story to share with us today. So James, why don't you tell us what you picked? Yeah. So um, not to go on too much of a rant, but I really have always wanted to write novels. And I went to these MFA programs and um, I'm sure we've all been part of workshops. And it was like, we were always workshopping short stories. And I was like, these are basically, they're using the same elements, but they're different things. And so it's, so I picked a chapter from the novel because I thought, hey, it might be useful or interesting to talk about something that's similar, that is fiction, but that is not quite what maybe we're used to talking. Right. So this is a chapter from which book? Uh, so it's um, The Lost World. Uh, it's like the Jurassic Park sequel. It's by Michael Crichton, who's one of my favorite writers. And it's a chapter in the middle of the book. Go ahead and um, read a section for us. All right. This is a chapter called Nest. The Red Jeep Wrangler came to a stop. Directly ahead, the game trail they had been following continued through the foliage to a clearing beyond. The game trail was wide and muddy, trampled flat by large animals. They could see large, deep footprints in the mud. From the clearing, they heard a low honking noise, like the sound of very large geese. Dodgson said, Okay, give me the box. King didn't answer. Basilton said, What box? Without taking his eyes off the clearing, Dodgson said, There's a black box on the seat beside you, and a battery pack. Give them to me. Basilton grunted, It's heavy. That's because of the cone magnets. Dodgson reached back, took the box, which was made of black anodized metal. It was the size of a shoebox, except it ended in a flaring cone. Underneath was mounted a pistol grip. Dodgson clipped a battery pack to his belt and plugged it into the box. Then he picked the box up by the pistol grip. There was a knob at the back, facing him, and a graduated dial. Dodgson said, Batteries charged? They're charged, King said. Okay, Dodgson said. I'll go first, into the nest area. I'll adjust the box and get rid of the animals. You two follow behind me, and once the animals are gone, you each take an egg from the nest. Then you leave and bring them back to the car. I'll come back last. Then we all drive off. Got it? Right, Basilton said. Okay, King said. What kind of dinosaurs are these? I have no fucking idea, Dodgson said, climbing out of the car. And it doesn't make any difference. Just follow the procedure. He closed the door softly. The others got out quietly, and they started forward, down the wet trail. Their feet squished in the mud. The sound from the clearing continued. To Dodgson, it sounded like a lot of animals. He pushed aside the last of the ferns and saw them. It was a large nesting site, with perhaps four or five low earthen mounds covered in grasses. The mounds were about seven feet wide and three feet deep. There were twenty beige-colored adults around the mounds, a whole herd of dinosaurs surrounding the nesting site, and the adults were big, thirty feet long and ten feet high, all honking and snorting. Oh my god, Basilton said, staring. Dodgson shook his head. They're myosaurs, he whispered. This is going to be a piece of cake.
Very good. What made you pick this passage in particular? It's kind of um, an unremarkable chapter, but I feel like it's the kind of chapter that all of us who want to write novels are going to have to write a lot of. And so this is not to be overlooked, you know, like we're going to talk about other stories that are much more complex or interesting. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to write a lot of these kind of work in the chapters. So I think, well, we better, you know, I think there's things here that we can still read. When you were emailing us about what it is you wanted to pick and you suggested novels and how a lot of us put so much emphasis on short stories and this kind of false idea that a short story is just a smaller version of a novel. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of why it's so hard to write a novel. <laughs> it's like running a marathon when all you've done is sprint. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's still running, but you can't just get up and do it. So I, I know like what I would take away from it, but I'm kind of curious to hear you guys talk about it first because I, I still I think I'm like reading everything in terms of like a short story. So I'm curious to see what you guys think. And I agree that this is like one of those chapters that you're going to have to do because it, it does a lot of legwork. Um, I don't really need to know what came before or after this to know that it's, like you said, it's unremarkable, but it, it's doing its job in terms of like moving the plot forward somehow. I like the metaphor of the running because if you do, if you sprint and then you try to run 26.1 miles at a sprint and you haven't really trained for that, you're going to fall on your face after a really short amount of time. I know the fastest people in the world are basically sprinting the whole thing, but that's a different matter. So, you know, a lot of what this is, is not, it not only doesn't do, but probably cannot do a lot of the things that short stories do mm -hmm. within a chapter. And even within the whole novel, you probably can't accomplish what you can in a short story. And you can accomplish so much more based on um, what the novel is and its length gives you that ability to do. It's kind of, uh, you know, we're obviously constrained by the format of the podcast. We're only going to talk about one chapter, but it would be interesting to talk about a whole novel and what we can learn from an entire novel. But that might be like a six hour episode. So never mind. Well, I think there's something though to be said for like doing it this way because I think by the time you finish reading a novel and you're talking about it in its entirety, you're basically talking about a longer short story. But when you're talking about these individual chapters and you're, to James's point, like having to focus on something that's like otherwise mundane or forgettable in terms of like the overall experience of reading the book, it had to stay in the book. It didn't get cut. So it's I think it's worth kind of picking it apart at this level. Not to pick it apart the way we used to do it in our novel workshop because that was a nightmare. <laughs> But to analyze like the good work that it is doing and why it needs to be there. That's a really good point, actually. I, you made me think of something that I hadn't thought of before, which is as kind of simple as this chapter reads, basically the entire novel is present in it. So I just finished reading it for the second time this afternoon, actually. And it, I was like, okay, so what did I just read? And it's kind of like there's two stories that go on through the whole thing. And it's like every Michael Craig novel, there's an idea story and there's an event story. And so like, you look at this chapter and what's the event going on? Well, the bad guys are going in to steal eggs from the dinosaurs so they can get rich. So like everybody's on a mission. So that's kind of like the event story, right? But then the idea story is he has this big break here on 225 where they start talking about the theories about dinosaurs raising stuff. And, and so that's an idea thing too. So it's like even in this chapter, and that's what I love about Crichton, it's like it's also carefully built. Like he knows he's not a great prose balance. He knows he can't coast, but he thinks like a scientist and it's like every chapter kind of contains those two threads and it's very consistent. Yeah, this chapter felt to me like it was introducing myosaurs and not merely for the, the, you know, dinosaurs are inherently cool to, to certain kinds of people and anything you say about them is interesting in that way. But he's also that conflict that you suggest, you talked about where the two different theories of dinosaurs and like what kinds of creatures they are kind of fight each other. He's introducing that too within just this, uh, that little section. Like if we were, if this were a short story, I was trying to think like, what would this chapter be in a short story? You could like elide all of this with a line, like they went and stole the eggs, yeah. but then you wouldn't get all that information about the myosaurs. You wouldn't get that 
background of that. You'd have to find another way to put that in. Yeah, I guess like that's the lecture in the novel is like these chapters are going to be so much longer in the number pages, but you're going to like, we want to live in this world. We like this world, and that's why we're buying this book with the T-Rex skeleton on the front because we want to live in this world and hear all about this stuff. I thought this chapter did in a way stand on its own, even if we're not illuminating like some larger theme of the novel. It's like a contained scene. And the way it ends, like you can tell that they're going to continue to go to these nest sites and steal more eggs. And I know like a little bit about Jurassic Park, right? I know that there's dinosaurs in the modern world and their DNA and all that stuff is like really precious. So I, I, a lot of that was like kind of informed for me when I started reading. I could tell that these people were taking the eggs, whether or not they were bad guys, I wasn't really sure. But I think it, the reason it stood on its own for me was just kind of like the dynamics between the characters were really clear. We could tell like who the leader was just based on how he was given commands. We could tell that it was like tense because he swore at the at one point. So whether it's tense because he thinks he's working with idiots or like what he's doing is like really high stakes, didn't really matter. But you got the sense that it was tense and that they didn't even know what kind of dinosaurs they were going to come up on. And by the time they do, like to John's point, we get like a what could be the first time we get a description of these myosaurs and how they're like big dumb cows and they notice the humans, but they don't really care. And they're successful in like stealing these eggs and they kind of like are going to go on to the next. The only difference really was that there wasn't some like overarching theme. There wasn't some like satisfactory ending in this scene, in this chapter, but a lot happened. We understood a lot. Obviously like stealing the eggs is probably going to matter for chapters to come. I imagine it's like a bigger part of this plot. And I've like heard from novelists before that what makes certain books feel like they're quick reads is when each chapter is short and ends on a cliffhanger. And I felt like both those things are true here. It was a really short chapter and the dialogue made it really quick and it was action packed so it read fast and then it ends literally with a line of dialogue where the guy says next and he's prompting someone to show him like the next place on the map. So it's like, you know, the next chapter is going to like probably pick up somewhere here or at least that this scene's not over. And that's kind of a gripping tactic that novels can use, but that like short stories probably can't get away with. So like all those things, I was I was kind of happy like to read this part and to think like, okay, there's at least a couple things that as I'm like struggling to write my own novel, I'm at least hitting on, which is the idea that like, it's got to be like a contained scene. It doesn't have to have like the overarching theme, but it should be interesting in and of itself, even if it's not going to be like memorable overall, like it should be interesting to read. It shouldn't feel like work to read each chapter, even when the chapters are doing work mostly. I thought this was like interesting enough, you know, you, you said that it wasn't memorable overall for the book, but I thought I was like reading it. I was like, cool, they're stealing dino eggs. Like that's pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. I also really like, um, you know, you said it, it is kind of a complete scene. I've been doing this thing where I, I've like I've been trying to distill the basic elements of any scene. Like, what are, like, a, here's a scene and lacking any one of these seven or eight elements, it doesn't fall apart. Like, you should be able to pick up a published novel and look at any scene and be able to map those on if your, your elements are correct. So it's like, I tried to do that here and I'm like, yeah, but all the elements are here. For example, which I yelled at you guys last time about at the, at the bar was um, uh, the dramatic question. The dramatic question is stated right away. Like, what, what would you guys say the dramatic question of this would be What's going to happen when they try to get the eggs? Yeah, or like <laughs> if they're going to be able to. Yeah, exactly. I guess I should say it this way. Because I've been listening to Aaron Sorkin on Masterclass, and he's like, every scene is intention and obstacle. It's that simple. Intention and obstacle. 
Yeah. Okay. So if you have intention and obstacle, then you have the dramatic question. Will the main character who's seen it has achieved their intention? So here, the obvious intention is Dodgson wants to get the eggs. And so to me, that was a huge breakthrough like in terms of writing my own scenes because my scenes had felt really unfocused before. Have you guys ever felt that before? You like reread a scene and you'd be like, wow, like I don't know what right. it is that feels unfocused. But like once everything falls into intention and obstacle, one of those two columns, I mean, I can even go through these pages here and draw little vectors like to the right or the left about whether it forwards the Dodgson's intention or against. And I like analyzing Crichton because pretty much every unit or every beat you can draw one of those vectors for. It might be too much. It might be too focused. But I think the reader feels that and generally it's a good thing. Yeah, I haven't read a lot of his work, but if it's like you said and he writes almost like a scientist, a lot of times, even if you wouldn't describe him as like a literary writer, the tone of the work is appropriate for the content. You know, I mean, we're talking about dinosaurs and DNA right so if you have someone that's like kind of no bullshit with the prose like he's just straight to the point so it feels action-packed everything feels important and concise that's a definite writing style that's a good point yeah it's fitting yeah form fits function what do you think john looking at the notes i because um like you said james kind of prepped us for thinking about scene but so the thing i was thinking about what a dramatic scene might be is basically like a unit of action and just thinking about theater and what a scene is in theater, it's, you know, when it's in one place, one location, and one group of characters. And what do they do in that location? So, you know, think of a chapter or a unit like a scene as being the characters that we're interested in for this particular moment arrive in a scene and do something. And like you said, that Sorkin talking about intentions, I think there's a formulation for scenes called scene sequel. And the scene is when the hero or the protagonist or the character is pursuing a goal. They're attempting to achieve their goal. And then something happens in the scene during their attempt. And a sequel is the reaction to that attempt. It's like, okay, we failed or okay, we succeeded. And there's different ways to formulate that. But the basic idea, like you said, of a scene is we're going to try to achieve something. So it's character driven in that way. It advances the plot in that way. It does all these things at the same time. The other thing I thought of here was uh, there's something called a French scene in which uh, you divide scenes up, not according to unit of action, like um, the goal oriented thing, but more when characters enter and exit the scene. It's like whenever a character enters, you're in a new what they call French scene. And whenever another character leaves, it's a different group of people. So they're going to behave in a different way. And I'm not sure what, what you might call the purpose of that is, but I did think it was interesting. We have the three guys in the truck and then halfway through the chapter, we could think of it as a new French scene when the Myasaurs enter. And that changes the equation because now it's not it's not just getting eggs. It's um, these specific eggs. This specific creature is our specific obstacle. I don't know. It was a th- That was the way I was trying to think about it. I think that is useful because when you're constructing a, any story or any scene or even a paragraph, you want to know like, what am I done? What's necessary? What can I cut? So it's kind of like, what's the climax of the scene? Well, the climax would be they either succeed in their attention or they fail in their attention, which carries them through the addition of the mind source. And then at the end of the day, they turn up the box and then they get the eggs and they run. So the climax is right there. It's success, which actually breaks another rule, which some of these gurus are like, you always want to end your scenes on a disaster. <laughs> yeah. These guys end with next. They succeeded, except it is a disaster because these are the bad guys. So them winning is actually a disaster for the base words. Oh, that's interesting. I've heard the description uh, try 
try fail cycles. And I've heard the description, the yes and, yes but, no and, where even if you do succeed, something worse happens. And maybe, like you said, it's because it's the bad guys, they succeed, but that's not good. It's not good. And you are right. Bad things do happen to them because of this egg. Which makes sense. I think reading this too, I realized why I sometimes struggle with like longer works, even if they're going to be short stories. I don't know if it's just like my writing style or what I care to write about, but sometimes I struggle to have extended scenes. <laughs> this is a short scene. I can write a short scene like this. But um, when it's when it's a novel and you're like kind of jumping around and, and staying in scene without like, I don't know, his, his style seems pretty like, is it all like present tense and like straight to the point kind of like? Yeah, like he totally avoids, well, you know, you can see the description so minimal. Yeah. The only thing he does do is he does these long scientific debates. Okay. I could see like, I would really have to like force myself. I would have to decide to write an entire novel, like 300 pages in sort of like present tense to force myself to like keep the momentum moving forward. Because I think what I'm kind of prone to is wanting to explain things in hindsight or wanting like stories to not necessarily have like this much present action for there to be like some kind of a revelation. And always when I'm reading a novel and like thinking about it in this way, I'm always thinking like that it has to move forward. And that like, if you've ever had to read like some of those classics in high school, like I always felt like they were all just like stuck, like just like, I don't know, like treading in a pond, you know, just over and over the same themes and like not much is happening. And those can get like really exhausting. Did you ever read Moby Dick, either of you? Yeah, it's been a long time. The Moby Dick is so, is like just like that. The first part of the book is like, I don't know, 10 chapters of, uh, okay, we're going to get on this ship. And then the next 30, 40 chapters are, let me tell you about whales. Right. And that's it. Yeah. That's it. And then the last five or six chapters are, okay, we found the whale. Now let's get into the action. Right. It's crazy how that's put together. Yeah. And like, I would argue that you couldn't get away with that today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right. It makes me think of like drug chemists. Like first you have like a more diluted form of the drug, which people are like, okay, yeah, we like this. But then as like time progresses, they like extract out more and more intense forms of the drug and finally like mainlining heroin. I think that's the same thing here. Like Greg, like he would be someone who would write all those long whale sections. But now he knows that if he wants to get those under, he has to put them in conflict in the present scene with lots of forward action. Right. Yeah. It almost feels like we could easily like slip into an argument about, or just a discussion maybe, about like action movies versus these film festival movies, you know? Like when you literally have explosions and shit in every scene of a film versus like, I don't know, like a trippy artsy one. And like the audiences for those are usually like really different and I think it's it goes to your point James where it's like the the more we see how easy it is to enjoy something that's like so consistently exciting the harder it is to like get people to come along for the ride so like when I read these novels like I appreciate what they're doing I just like I have so much trouble writing it <laughs> one thing um I thought the, the POV for this was um what um I've heard called cinematic POV or something like that where you, you don't really and I, maybe it's different in other chapters but for this chapter it feels like you kind of you get into the point of view of characters you don't really get into their thoughts and their feelings and they're not moody second guessing themselves they are just doing things and reacting to what's in front of them but we don't get to see inside their minds very much even uh, like that section you read when he turns around and he says uh, there's a black box in the seat beside you and a battery pack give him to me and the guy turns around to give it to him and then there's this long description the box which was made of black anodized metal the size of a shoebox, ended in a flaring cone presumably Dodgson knows what it is because later on he uses it but it's being described in a way for 
us who do not know what it is. And it's similar to the the, the way the Myasaurs are introduced. Dodgson shook yeah. his head. They're Myasaurs, he whispered. This is going to be a piece of cake. He knows what Myasaurs are. But now we have to cut to Myasaurs have been named by paleontologist Jack Horner, etc. And the explanation of why we might expect it to be a piece of cake. I mean, I thought that this is going to be a piece of cake kind of sets up a dramatic question. Why is it going to be a piece of cake? Why does he think that? Is it going to be a piece of cake? And then we're given that background within like a scientific conflict that's interesting, but it's also interesting to answering that dramatic question. And then we come back to the scene where he steps out into the field with all these myosaurs and we have to get to see them behave in real time and see if it's going to be a piece of cake or not. But that POV that where we don't have to, we don't get into his thoughts, things are presented to us as if we don't know what they are uh, as mysteries to us, even when they are not mysteries to the characters is an interesting point of view that might lend itself to that kind of exploding cinematic feel, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it makes me think of something else too. I sound like I'm advertising Masterclass, but I'm not. <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell was talking about how he loves to give his readers tools. He's like, okay, now be patient for two or three pages. I'm going to set up some tools that you will then be able to use in the part of the story. And so that's kind of like this. Like we get this long description of the black box. Why? Well, because that's kind of like the main thing that they're going to weapon they're going to be using. It blasts the sound of the dinosaur, scare it, and get scared and go away. That's the only reason that he, quote unquote, spends time doing this. Like he doesn't waste time on anything that's unnecessary or anything that's not directly going to lend weight to pushing the conflict one way or another. Yeah, the black box, obviously, it's like Chekhov's gun or something. It's like, okay, this is going to be important. Right. It's not going to be a whole paragraph unless it comes back later and is very important. But it isn't, I, I just thought it was interesting the way it was described, you know, very, it was very geometric in its description. You know, when you describe a table, you can say, oh, it's flat with legs underneath, or you can say, oh, we use it to eat dinner at. Those are two different ways to describe a table. One is for an alien who doesn't know what human beings do with tables, and one is for human beings who understand what tables are inherently anyway. I feel like I've heard you use that example before. I wrote about it in a book. Yeah. Okay. You might have read the, was that, the version was that of that. that first, yeah, that chapter. I mean, that makes sense. And that was kind of why plucking this like out of the middle of this book was interesting because they did a little bit of that hand holding to explain at least like what these dinosaurs were and at least to like tell us the reader what they were about to do and how they were going to steal the, the eggs. And then like there's even that description and I'm sure it comes up later if it hasn't already about this like um, anodized metal box and the cone at the end. Like I don't really understand like what that's for. I guess they're like maybe putting the eggs in it, but I don't understand like why it's built that way and everything and they're talking about like batteries being charged and all this stuff and like if this were deeper in the novel maybe and we've gotten that lengthy explanation maybe it would have just been like the box and you would have been kind of confused but I feel like the way they're describing it now they're giving us like enough to understand it in the present action and then maybe they'll like take a little more time to explain it later. Well that's what happens is Dodson, or he um, he lifted the box like a gun and stepped forward into, into yeah. view. That's up kind of a cliffhanger at that break and then Dodson expected a big reaction of um, when the Myasaurus saw him, but there was none at all. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. That's exactly what a novel is to me. Blah, blah, blah. He turned on the box. A continuous high-pitched shriek filled the clearing. The Myasaurus immediately turned toward the sound, honking and lifting their heads. So now we're we're seeing the box in action. Mm-hmm. Right. So he he's always known what that box was, right. but that initial description, that initial confusing, like, I don't know what this box is or why it's put together that way, right. was not for him. No, it's right. not his yeah, point of view. It. Yeah, it's our point of view on it, yeah. which is why I think it's, it's a cinematic point of view more so than a 
third person point of view. Yeah. And um, even like to the cinematic, well, I don't know, maybe this is not just like for movies. It's it's for any kind of like science fiction world or fantasy world. But even like the two other cronies of his like act as foils for that, right? Like they don't necessarily understand what the box is. Yes. They're reaching back for it. They're like, what the hell? Like it's heavy. <laughs> Yeah. He's like, just hand it to me and don't ask questions. <laughs> That's right. You know, I think that would be an interesting exercise, actually, to say, okay, this is a cinematic point of view. Now, what if it was a really close third-person literary point of view? How would you rewrite that initial description of the black box through Dodge and Eyes? It would be similar, have the same elements, but it would sound very different. Wow. That's a great um, prompt just in general. Like, pick your favorite movie scene and now write it. Right. Yeah, I think I find myself sometimes when a character doesn't know what something is, and I'm writing about what it is falling to that like like shape descriptions I had this funny thing over here and this shape and appeared as if it had one of these on it but you know I have no idea what it is I wonder how good of a description that really is and how useful that is yeah I always like think of Harry Potter and how when I was little I would I would read these descriptions of things and when the movies came out like 10 years later I was like that's what that looks like you know <laughs> and they would describe everything like the house elves like which those looked pretty good to me but then there's like i don't know there's this like thing that harry harry potter eats in like book four and it like had all these like tentacles and it was like squiggly and weird and like he swallowed it down to like transform into a fish and when when i saw that thing in the movie i was like i don't know because you do everybody has like their own thought and i would have to go back to jk rowling to see if she compared it to anything that we are familiar with but yeah i think that's probably always most useful is to compare it to something that like you said either an alien would understand or that humans have a basic understanding of. Yeah, I think purpose-based descriptions are probably more evocative than physical-based descriptions. Yeah. Like, what can it looks like you hold it. It has a grip. It looks like it has a flair for something that does something. Yeah. So it looks like yeah. you hold it and you do something with it. And I think that's more useful than it was a box with the ending in a flaring cone and a knob at the back and a, held up by a pistol or picked up the box by the pistol grip. Mm -hmm. If we know that you can hold it and point it at something, that it seems to be, even if we don't know what you can do with it. I think just looking at it, you can kind of surmise that that's what you do with it. Right. Anyway, I feel like that would be a, a stronger description of it right. and give be more evocative to our minds than purely physical. Yeah. If that makes sense. It seems like with a book like this, he's this author's probably having to do that pretty often, right? I mean, whether it's like the technology or the dinosaurs themselves that he's describing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what else did you hope that we would kind of take away from this, James? Or was there something else that you wanted to focus on? Yeah, um, I just thought, you know, even in one, two, three pages, I was like, okay, what tricks can I steal from this author that maybe we could use? One of them was, I, I call it the Frankenstein detail. Like, if there's details that we give to objects that just don't really bring a thing to life. But then maybe you guys have a better term for it. Details that just, okay, now the description is alive. And for me, details that are given in action about something are even more powerful than just kind of static details, like our stuff details. So like the detail of the mothers dropping grass on the eggs to keep to regulate the temperature of the eggs, it's just a detail that sells it to me. Yeah. Yeah. You also made a comment in the margins of the copy that we read where it was like the Mysores like flipped out when they showed up and they were peeing themselves. Yes, right. The peeing. <laughs> <laughs> that was an exhort, like the, the, the page exhorts me to not to do it all the time, right? Because like in the beginning, I'm like, oh, contrast that with like the red Jeep Wrangler came to a stop. <laughs> 
Idaho. Right. It was wide and muddy, trampled flat by large animals. They could see large, deep footprints in the mud. None of those are very literarily described, you know, super functional. Mm-hmm. But he does the, you know, he does the essentials. You're like, you have to have this grounding. You have to have basic grounding. Um, you have to have time and place. You have to have the, the main characters in action, you know. They have to have an attitude about the thing that's going on. And at first, you're right, like, it's kind of detached. Like, they don't have an attitude about it. But then you start to get their attitudes. And the attitudes are set in conflict to each other. That's another thing that I noticed that Curtin does. Everything is set in conflict. Even this paragraph at the beginning of the first break, when he starts talking about Myrosaurus, Crichton always does this, I notice. He's like, let me tell you about Myrosaurus. But I'm not just going to tell you about Myrosaurus. I'm going to tell you what all the stupid establishment has thought about Myrosaurus for years and years and years. And then right in the middle of the paragraph, every single time he does this, there's a but. But now we know because of Jack Horner, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> even, the, even a simple paragraph of just information dump is set in conflict. It's constant conflict. And I did not realize how, how like, religiously he does this, like, in every chapter of every book that he has. I wonder if he knows he's doing it. <laughs> I feel like he's got to because it's so consistent, but that's a good question. Maybe he just, maybe some people just kind of automatically. Yeah. I mean, that is what drama is and it's conflict, right? Another thing, the last thing I'll say is uh, it might not have been apparent just from this chapter, but there's also the thematic conflict going on in the way that the characters react. So like Dodson obviously doesn't care about the dinosaurs. He has no awe for nature. King and Hazleton kind of do. And this is like, you know, kind of the moral theme that runs through this book and through the first one that she was talking King says, okay, what kind of dinosaurs are these? Dogs and climbing out of the car. I have no fucking idea. Doesn't make any difference. Just follow the procedure. That little conflict is repeated. When they go and they see the myosaurs, Basilton says, oh my god. Dodson's reaction. They're myosaurs. This is going to be a piece of cake. Dodson's all about just getting the stuff. And then at the end, when they're running away from it, Basilton and King are like, that was amazing. Great. Fantastic. And then Dodson's like, we'll finish in the, you know, four hours. So it's kind of like, it's very subtle, but it's, again, I'm just impressed with how deceptively spare it is. And yet he does have all this work beneath the words. Yeah, a lot of my comments kind of related to the fact that I didn't think that this did have like an overarching theme. So it's good to hear that and kind of good to know that um, even if these characters like aren't exploring it like on a deep level or even if the narrator is not highlighting it for you, like that it is on some level present. John, do you want to tell us what your maybe takeaway was from this one? Yeah, I guess my takeaway, I'm always all about POV. So my takeaway is going to have to do with that. And basically the stuff I was talking about with cinematic POV. I mean, I don't want to take away so much that I'm going to write everything from now on in cinematic POV. But I think what this point of view kind of how it accomplishes what it accomplishes versus how other POVs accomplish what they accomplish. It's something important to think about when I'm approaching a story is like, what does this these moments need to accomplish and when can I move in and out of a person's head in order to accomplish that and you know this is like if we talk about psychic distance in third person this is like the farthest removed psychic distance you can get from the person's head when do you want to pull out at that distance versus when do you want to dive in and be like the George Saunders that we read where it's like immediate right in their thoughts and everything in between so that's my takeaway thinking about point of view some more right yeah when I read this um my takeaway was the same as it is now, but now it just feels dumber. But my takeaway is just basically that every time I read a chapter like this, especially in a novel, I have to remind myself that like sometimes the best writing is just like straightforward plot and it can be really simple in terms of like what this writer set out to accomplish in this chapter, which is that they're going to go steal dinosaur eggs. And like James just said, there's like a hint of the overarching theme throughout this, but it's not the only scene that's going to illustrate that, you know, not a lot 
hangs on this scene, I, I would argue, not having read any of the rest of it, that you have to like accomplish the theme right here in this scene. But obviously it's going to play out because you've already like established it before and after. So there's just something really enjoyable about just reading something very straightforward, really simple language, really clear, really concise. Like Crichton's not trying to be fancy. And so we just get to enjoy it. And I think when we talk about like the cinematic point of view, like I just usually think of that in terms of the fact that it's it's really easy to picture how this would look on a screen. And I think it is because it is so straightforward. It's obviously action. We're not even like worried about what each of these characters is thinking in the moment because their expressions are going to play it out, right? It's not like those really complicated novels that you read and you wonder how they're going to absolutely butcher them on screen. <laughs> and it's because so much is happening in a character's head that can't be accomplished on screen without narration or whatever. Yeah, so I'm thinking of my own novel now and just thinking of how freeing it will be to just say, okay, just like write what happens next instead of write what happens next in the context of the overarching plot and also move forward this like little side subplot and theme over here. You know, I think it can like all work out if you're just writing straightforward. Yeah. If that's in there, like if you put it in the characters, the way these characters interact with each other, if that is a way in which the theme is being expressed, like James said, then just putting those characters into action and pursuing what they're doing and having them react the way they would react as emblems of that theme, right? then you're going to accomplish the theme just by following the action. Yeah, it's almost like uh, if you've established your characters firmly enough, then they're they're like rules in and of themselves, right? Like they're absolutes for you. And so, like you said, if you're just like setting them off into action, then they'll obey you in that way. That's right. Very good. Um, well, thanks so much for sharing this with us, James. Yeah, thanks for being game, guys. Enjoy it. 